Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. Glad you could be with us today. We know that here in Minnesota, we have some serious racial disparities. The state has some of the biggest gaps in the country when you look at the differences between black Minnesotans and whites. You see it in household income, home ownership, education, employment, health issues, and health care. This hour, we're listening back to a conversation with someone who has some bold ideas for bringing about more racial equity in the state. He's come up with some surprising and often very practical solutions. Adair Mosley is the past president and CEO of Pillsbury United Communities, a nonprofit community organization in Minneapolis. Last spring, he helped raise $1 million to give a $10,000 college scholarship to each graduating senior at North Community High School in Minneapolis. He also helped open a grocery store in a food desert and started a fund to help support rebuilding businesses in North Minneapolis after George Floyd's murder. Now, Adair has been tapped to bring his vision and innovation to a bigger stage. He stepped into a new role back in October as CEO of the African American Leadership Forum. Now, that is a Black-led group formed in 2006 to close the gaps of racial disparities in Minnesota. I talked with Adair in September. He had just had a milestone birthday. He turned 40 years old, and I asked him what was on his mind as he thought about this new season of life. Yeah, you know, um, fortunately, I, I have a set of friends who have already um, crossed over this milestone. And so <laughs> I've been at the front row kind of witnessing what it looks like to turn um, 40. But um, I posted last night on social media that I, I'm just so grateful that in this moment, I have both clarity and purpose of both why I'm here, why I'm occupying this space, what is the um, rent that I need to pay, um, and that is through service. Mm-hmm. Um, of course. And um, so I'm, I'm just so filled and so blessed that um, I've been doing the work, um, both personally and professionally in my life. And I'm I'm ready to just be used, be a vessel um, in this moment. So, so really, really excited about that. And your energy, your vibe is contagious. So again, I'm so happy <laughs> you're in the studio this morning. Thank you. Now, as I just mentioned in the intro, Pillsbury United Communities yeah. raised $1 million to give out scholarships to graduating seniors at North Community High School uh, just a, a few months ago. Yeah. Many of our listeners may have heard about that. Tell us, how did that come about? And where are we now in that that process? Yeah, absolutely. And, and a wonderful team effort, both of the Pillsbury United Communities team and our philanthropic partners. But uh, one of the what was the prompt really for that was um, the energy that was kind of sitting over North Minneapolis um, at a time when D. Hill was murdered. Um, of course, a the, student at North, yeah, a student mm-hmm. at North High School. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, the district was the teachers union had just gone through a strike. Of course, the um, this thing of COVID that mm-hmm. was affecting not only the students in North Minneapolis, but across the country, frankly. And all of those things conflating at a time and saying, really, this is about hope. And how do we tell a, a group of students that they matter, that we see them, that they have value, that they don't have to be defined by the circumstances these that they're experiencing in this moment. And so the the premise of this was to send a shock of hope through the North Minneapolis community. Mm-hmm. And I believe we succeeded. Um, it All things tell us, you know, both the, the data that's coming back, the stories, the rich stories that are coming back from, from um, both students and their families. And people, um, I remember getting a call from a, um, a C- Council President uh, Jenkins, who's saying, it really felt like we all won. 
Yes, yeah. just for me, just watching the the video, seeing the photos, and and the way that it, the process was set up, there was no application for it. Yeah. But it, it is like use the money for training, college, yeah. or for some type of of professional training. So it made them all think about what what can be next for me. Absolutely. You know, it was essential for us and so many both scholarships and funds that exist have conditions, whether it's GPA or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, your academic trajectory. And we wanted to really tell kids that it can be self-actualized, right? Self-determined, whatever you want to do with your life, um, that whether it's a training, whether it's a certificate, a two-year institution, four-year institution, and we wanted to do it without conditions, And so I think that that was the beauty of this, that students who perhaps didn't see themselves as academically excelling um, had an institution and a bunch of people that said, you matter, you have a place here, and um, we're going to make an investment in that. Tell me about uh, where some of these young people are planning to go. What are they planning to do? Yeah, we have uh, students going to colleges all across the country, universities, um, from those that are on uh, playing athletics um, at, at a variety of schools, we have students that are going to Stanford. We even have a couple of students that are going to the Philippines. Um, and so this narrative that our mm-hmm. students are not, right, um, we, we've just found a, a much different experience um, with this group of students. And it was a catalyst. There were many students who didn't have a plan that now are mm-hmm. saying we're going to go to the local community college, whether it's Minneapolis College or, or Hennepin Tech. Um, to pursue um, a trade or a technical degree. And how do we all benefit from this, Adair? I mean, I'm sitting here getting chills hearing yeah. about it, but there's a benefit to the the greater uh, community. Absolutely, because we know, and we see this firsthand because we have some um, young, great young people who work for our organization who go off but want to come back and make an investment here in their own communities. Mm-hmm. And and I want to lift up uh, Ajayla Hansen, who is a, a young, bright um, student who graduated from North, went off to Xavier, and now is a journalist in our North News program. And that's what I believe that will happen, is that we will have young people who will come back who will want to make investments in the place in which they grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, but our state benefits, our society benefits when we can see more um, young people go after their dreams. And we just simply need the both investments and institutions to foster that. So uh, as we learn more about Pillsbury United Communities, many people in Twin Cities may be very familiar with all the things that Pillsbury does, but folks across greater Minnesota may not be. Uh, I'm fascinated by the history of it because I I know it goes way back, like more than 100 years. Can you share a little bit about how Pillsbury United Communities came about? Yeah, so um, Pillsbury United Communities emerged out of the settlement house movement. And settlement houses were at the turn of the century when many immigrants were coming to the country um, who didn't have both the economics and social and were trying to acclimate to this new place. It is a movement that started in Europe, actually in London. Um, and um, many people will know the Jane Adams Hall House out of Chicago. And so Jane Adams was really the pioneer of this movement in saying we wanted to improve the conditions of immigrants who were new to our country. And so houses were built, settlement houses were built um, that now today are community centers across our country. And so Pillsbury um, and most of those houses were seeded by wealthy individuals. Um, and so some of them carry the names like a Pillsbury. Um, who really wanted to sow that type of investment in community. And so things from both athletic and social clubs were created, education programs, but we were also social reformers. We were fighting for sanitation rights, for better housing quality. And so we've been able to carry that tradition over a century as an institution um, and really keep those ideals that 
uh, change exist in the communities um, in in which you know mm-hmm. people can have a really uh, self actualized that they can control their own destiny, and we're just using the platform of this institution to unleash that. And you're doing it in many ways. You yeah, know, a lot you. of nonprofits focus on one thing. Maybe it's home ownership or tutoring or the arts. But what's unique about Pillsbury United Communities is how many different programs it runs. Uh, you run a newspaper, a grocery store, a radio station, and a community theater. And let's talk uh, about, let's run through the list a little bit and, and talk about the impact of each. Uh, you and I first met uh, about five years ago um, when uh, when when you helped launch a grocery store yeah. in a food desert, yeah. um, North Market is what it's called. Uh, it's there on Humboldt Avenue in Minneapolis. Yeah. Uh, and um, it's still going strong. What was so revolutionary about, you know, opening a grocery store? Yeah, thank you. And and, and this was um, certainly with um, my partner, my predecessor, Shonda Smith-Baker, and a lot of great leaders who are still with the organization. Um, but what was, I think the beauty about um, opening that grocery store is that we didn't start there. We were on a much different trajectory of looking at how to actually increase WIC utilization in our communities, the Women, Infant, and Children's Program. Um, the state was trying to grapple with this thing of not leaving um, federal dollars on the table. And what we really found through our both empathetic kind of interviews, immersing ourselves in the experience of North Minneapolis residents, is that uh, they were taking two buses to get to a grocery store, that the in-store experience, that we heard narratives around in the early 90s, many grocery stores being along the West Broadway corridor and had closed up. Mm -hmm. And so um, actually starting to solve a problem around one thing opened up this idea that um, what people are really, the essence of what they're trying to get at is that our community is being deprived of this basic right, right? Access to food. And we're having to go outside. And now coupling that with the data, we had an immense amount of data that just showed us people were, you know, going to suburbs, going downtown, and the leakage in our community. And then the data showed us 30, over 30 convenience stores in North Minneapolis that Mm. um, are really not providing that healthy and nutritious or access to those foods. And so all of that really compounding and saying, we can do this. And looking at some other models, another model that in Chester, Pennsylvania, um, of an organization that had did a similar kind of concept and saying, we can do this. And that was the, that was the catalyst. Um, for bringing this grocery store to, to to North Minneapolis at 44th and Humboldt, and it's it's big, it's well well stocked, and <laughs> and I remember with the tour, you showed yeah. me at the time there was a a, a yoga center yeah, or a space yeah. for like meet a community gathering space for meetings, but also exercise. Is yeah. that still going? It is. Um, you know, COVID uh, put a damper on some of it, but mm-hmm. we've revitalized all all of those programs. But what we wanted to build was more than a grocery store, and that has actually became mm-hmm. the tagline of it. So it's the integration of both community and wellness. We, we said every time we went out and told this story that it was um, it was really about building another community center. Mm-hmm. It was about this place that we could foster social connection and community, that we could promote healthy um, behaviors. Um, and there were cooking classes. Yep, cooking classes, food demonstrations, health coaches. And so all of mm-hmm. these things live in the umbrella of that. And we have a great partner, North Memorial Health, that um, is occupying our wellness center. And wonderful, uh, if I may, uh, um, health coaches, Val and um, uh, Val and Shay, um, Marlon Moore, others who are in our community that are um, empowering people that look like them mm-hmm. um, to, to live um, healthier lifestyles. 
Pillsbury House Theater may be yeah. familiar to many of our listeners. Maybe uh, you've seen a play there. Uh, tell me about the value of having these performances and um, how you all choose, you know, the types of shows and the topics. Yeah, uh, just a, a wonderful and a rich legacy um, of providing an access to the arts in our community. And Pillsbury House and Theater just celebrated its 30th year. Um, and so um, just tremendous. But really, the, the platform is to um, foster that kind of dialogue, to provoke people to think differently, to bring those that are outside of our communities to see humanity in a much different way, mm-hmm. to use the power of arts to foster foster a dialogue, a conversation. Open um, minds. Open right. minds, right? right? But also to uh, immerse people in the lived experiences of, of those um, actors um, on the stage. And so it is this, it sits at 35th in Chicago for those that um, haven't been, but it is the place of both the intersection of creativity and community. Um, And um, really in this next season, we have bold, really bold strategies and views of how to amplify that, how to expand our campus, how to provide more infrastructure to, we saw a lot of small um, arts organizations close. Um, yeah. even um, uh, pre-pandemic. And so we want to revitalize the um, arts um, economy um, by really expanding our campus there. Adair, we'll talk uh, more about African-American Leadership Forum for folks who aren't familiar with that um, in a moment. But I want to hear about, um, you know, North News. Pillsbury yeah. United took over a community newspaper a couple of years ago. Um, why is it so important to... to um, be in the newspaper business. Um, I mean, because I, I get the the significance. I mean, having a voice in the stories that are being told. So tell me about that. Yeah, you you know this all too well. Both the underrepresentation of um, people that frankly look like us that are telling the stories, but and how those stories are being told. And again, the 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 impetus for this was about shifting the narrative. And actually having and how do you take a place that oftentimes the headlines are sensationalized, that it's the negative that we often share. And how do we shift that narrative to really lift up both doers and innovators and community builders who are who have untold stories. Right. And and Mm -hmm. don't necessarily have a a platform. Um, How do we amplify that? And how do we shine light and not shy away from things that our communities are dealing with, but offer a different lens to those stories, um, provide depth to, to, to the narrative? Um, we know that we, there are curved and bent notes to a story. And so that was really the impetus for North News. And so, um, again, one of those other bold and innovative ideas of us pushing and saying, um, what would it look like for us to be in this business? And now we have um, really a commu- um, community media, if you will, empire, because we also have a radio station, KRSM. Yes, you do. Um, <laughs> and this is a radio station um, broadcasting from the Phillips community yeah. in South Minneapolis. And then I read, too, that you have um, shows in six different languages, yeah. English, Spanish, Somali, Ojibwe, Hmong, and Haitian Creole. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, we, we are certainly enterprising. But again, the, this... this uh, these media entities are really coming together to amplify both people in place, to change how stories are being told about communities, to give those that haven't had a platform access. And I, it has been the most enriching thing. Um, and we see what works, right? We see the both pride in place, pride in people, um, when those that look like them are telling the stories. And so that's what we want to continue to amplify and mm-hmm. provide space to. 
I need to give the call letters KRSM. You think maybe I, I could get on? There? You think somebody might want to give me an hour for let, an interview? Let I, me I tell you, you will, you will be next week. <laughs> so <laughs> they're texting me now, I'm sure. <laughs> and, you know, um, people probably hear this as you uh, as you speak, but you often talk about humility um, yeah. as you describe your approach um, and how you lead. Um, humility as a way uh, to listen when you're talking to community members. Talk more about that because uh, I think many of us feel like we do need more more. I guess, humble leaders. Yeah, yeah. I think there's two things in leadership, right, uh, that we can offer, and that's humility or hubris. And hubris says, here's what you need, and humility asks, what do you need? Mm -hmm. And I lead um, from that as a person, but um, we've also been able to foster that as an institution. And that is the um, both the values of this organization of, frankly, asking people, what do you need? And when we listen to people intentionally and we listen to them with care, um, and actually bringing solutions for it of things of what they need. I think we get to this, this place of kinship. Um, and that, and that's anchored in reciprocity. Um, right. And me recognizing that not only that I as a leader and the institution in which I'm working for, um, can learn, can benefit, can grow from those that even that we're trying to serve. And um, so we approach this work. I approach this work with so much humility that um, I am humbled to be in the presence of those who live and walk um, a different life. And uh, although we have some shared experiences, some shared lived experiences, that I remain humble. I stand in awe of the what people have to carry um, and that they are making a way out of no way. And so I think that mm-hmm. that is the thing that fuels me. That is the thing that fuels this institution. There's a lot of making a way out of no way. Ain't that it right now? Yeah. <laughs> and ha- has been for a long time. We have a listener in Minneapolis. This is RT on the line. Oh, good wonderful. morning, RT. <laughs> well, good morning. Uh, since Adair said he was humble, I want to brag about it. Now, is this it, RT Ryback, our former mayor of it, Minneapolis? It, it sure is. Oh. And the CEO of the Minneapolis Foundation, where I'm yes. blessed to work with Shonda Smith Baker, Adair's predecessor. Yes. Um, one of the huge shifts that has taken place in the giving community, the philanthropic community, since George Floyd's murder, is that Adair's influence and the influence of several others really helped turn around the way we look at how people are generous. And during that time, in those days after George Floyd's murder, I was on about 57 different Zoom calls with Adair and multiple other community leaders trying to figure out what to do. And the thing that he helped inspire us to do was to not do it the old way, not sit in our organizations and project what the community needs, but following something Shonda has certainly worked with us on is to get more proximate. Adair was able to take a huge group of people who used to swoop in and try to solve community problems and say, no, listen not only to us who are more proximate, but then he turns around and brought our voice even closer to community. And I think the humility he's talking about is one that increasingly has to be felt by those of us who have wanted to do more to help community, but need to listen more. Mm -hmm. So I just want to say I've been deeply inspired by the work of Adair, and I'm thrilled he's uh, moving to ALF. Oh, thank you. Thank you, RT. That's R.T. Ryback, the president of the Minneapolis Foundation, former mayor of Minneapolis. Uh, He said, uh, Adair... uh, 
not do it the old way. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about this. The murder of George Floyd uh, has led to a lot more public conversation about racial inequality in the state. What changes have you seen happen that um, really has been measurable and, and, and gives you s- some hope over the last couple of years into some of the approaches and some of the support? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, much. And thank you for those kind words, R.T. Um, what what I feel there's certainly been um, seismic shifts in both giving, um, as, as R.T. has alluded to, and especially from the philanthropic sector, um, we have uh, we have a growing chorus and we've we've had a long history of our um, um, civic leaders and business leaders in this community coming together and galvanizing certainly around issues. And that's been amplified, I think, mm-hmm. over these past few years. Um, the, what I, what I want to continue to put at the front of that is that we must not return to our old ways. And I think, um, as people, right, it's oftentimes we can default to what is comfortable. Mm -hmm. And the moment that we start to get comfortable, I think is the thing that we just, we have to remember, why are we doing this to continue to push? We must put people in the room who provoke, um, and who are antagonist to the ways in which we think about this work, um, because I think that that is the thing that pushes us forward. That's how change comes about. That is how change comes about. And so how do we get comfortable with this this place of uncomfortableness? And um, so I'm really, really excited about that. I'm excited that, um, that everything is on the table. That we are no longer using both, um, you know, conversations and, um, you know, masking this issue. Mm-hmm. That we are having very overt conversations about what is happening in our communities. And I think that that is the thing in which is going to help us solve it, that we're actually naming the thing in which what, what, what we've all known has been the undercurrent, this underbelly in our country for quite some time. Um, both a systemic and institutional racism, um, the the rise of uh, white supremacy, those types of things we're explicitly naming in this moment. Mm-hmm. Let's take a phone call in Rochester um, as we talk with uh, Adair Mosley. And this is Ojoy, is that right? Yes. Ojoy in Rochester, good morning. What did you want to share with us? Uh, Good morning. Uh, Thank you for having me. Um, Yeah, I was listening while I was driving to Rochester. In fact, I lived in Austin. Uh I'm driving to Rochester work. And uh, while listening, I, I was so inspired again and listening to, this, to the history of uh, the programs and projects that Derry has been working on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I was wondering, what are the plans for the growing uh, rural Minnesota? Uh, mm-hmm. We have seen population growth uh, from the middle 2000 to present. Uh, that includes Rochester, Mankato, uh, Worthington, Austin, mm-hmm. Minnesota. There are a lot of refugees and immigrants down here. Yes. How, what are the plans uh, that would benefit them uh, from these projects? That Excellent question. Uh, Ojoy calling from Rochester. You'll love this. Adair knows a thing or two about southern Minnesota, don't you? <laughs> I do, yes. Uh, grew, grew up in um, St. Charles, graduated high school out of Winona, um, and so I have deep roots to uh, St. Charles, Minnesota. Um, I have deep roots to Southeast Minnesota, to, to our rural communities. So yeah, to our listeners across greater Minnesota, yeah. are some of the work that's being that's happening here that you've been very involved with, uh, are these things, things that can be replicated in small towns? 
Absolutely. And, you know, and I'll use this, I uh, use the concept of, and I think both newspapers, right, and grocery stores. Mm-hmm. Um, our small communities have seen those things that are, are vital to the economic fabric, to the social fabric of communities um, close down. And one mm-hmm. of the selling points, actually, when we got a, a state appropriation around the grocery store is because we connect this issue to rural Minnesota, um, greater Minnesota. In terms of um, small towns where grocery stores were closing up, the mom and pop stores, and people having to drive the 20 miles to a Rochester mm-hmm. or to an Austin to be able to access groceries. And so we oftentimes divide these conversations by both urban, urban and rural, greater right. Minnesota. But we know that there's so many shared experiences across the state of people. Um, I often say the rural white and the urban black have so much in common. Right. Um, in, in terms of Say both, that again, the rule, the rule white and the urban black have so much in common. And we have let both narratives and politics and all of these things divide us in this moment. But if we really take that away, we see that we're you know, we want better access to both health services and we want um, better opportunities for employment. We want to see our communities thrive from um, housing quality, all mm-hmm. of those things. Um, we have a very, very, very um, shared, shared story and lived experience right here in this state. All right, Adair, we've talked a lot about Pillsbury. Let's talk about African American Leadership Forum. Nice. Um, you're the incoming CEO beginning in October. Um, I know that ALF started in 2006. It's been around for a few years, but yeah. how do you describe what it is and, and what it does? Yeah, um, Alpha African American Leadership Forum is this both civic endeavor and cross um, sector collaborative of Black leaders in our, in our community um, who are really trying to foster um, new solutions and ideas to some of these pervasive um, inequities that exist um, in the Black community. And it is about the coalescing and the um, community building of these leaders to really have um, dialogue and um, ultimately moving to both action. Um, to, to really change the outcomes, um, of those that, um, of, of black, of the black community. It is also an institution that is fostering and developing leaders. And so it has the wonderful Josie Johnson Leadership Academy that is developing young leaders across our community. So successful black leaders, uh, focusing on, uh, training up the next generation of, of leaders, yeah. as well as, uh, putting their heads together to say, how do we tackle some of these problems? Exactly. Got yeah. it. All right. So I like to talk about racial disparities, right? Okay. So I happen to have some notes here just to remind people just the numbers, the data, the fact. Uh, Minnesota has some glaring inequalities. Um, we know that the experience of black Minnesotans uh, overall is much different from the majority of white Minnesotans. Uh, and the, the, the disparities, they cut across every aspect of life. We look at the median black family income in the Twin Cities. It's around $40,000 a year, yeah. which is less than half of the median white family income of more than $80,000 a year. And in July of this year, uh, black unemployment, that black unemployment rate had more than doubled since a year before and was three times the rate of white unemployment. Uh, When we look at, um, let's say, home ownership in Minnesota, more than three quarters of white families um, uh, own their home compared to uh, just over a quarter 
of black families. So Mm -hmm. 75% compared to 25%. Um, And then we also know about the achievement gap in education. That's been a conversation for years. Um, Minnesota has one of the the nation's worst education achievement gaps between blacks and whites. And in 2019, the state ranked 50th when it comes to those racial disparities and high school graduation rates. So we see it in every aspect of life. And so, you know, what do you think? Like, why do we have like these huge disparities. Like, why is it so stark here in this particular state? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the hard truth is, is that our systems are failing our communities and um, entrenched in these systems. And and I think we've seen this, especially being amplified over this past couple of years, that there is both uh, systemic and institutional racism that sits at the core of it that we must tackle. And we must have intentional policies that actually promote equity. And um, this can uh, in a state like Minnesota, because at the macro level, we are we are extremely altruistic as people. Right. Um, We have a long history of generosity Mm -hmm. and that generosity will um, oftentimes mask the disparities in which what we're talking about, because we say, yes, we are helping people. We are doing things, but I don't think that we're getting to the structural inequities that actually will promote both economic and social prosperity in communities. And so that is the thing in which um, is actually calling me to go work on at, at at a greater level. So there's helping people and then there's equipping people to yeah. to um, be in the driver's seat themselves. You often talk about in interviews, you talk about enduring change. Yeah. Uh, how do you see enduring change um, and, and how is that different from providing charity? Yeah, yeah. Um, charity, um, communities need charity. And I won't say that, you know, we, we need institutions that are focused on providing the basic needs. And I've been fortunate at Pillsbury, I think, to walk acro- work across that continuum of both charity and transformational impact. And now in this moment, um, a- as a leader, I want to turn my attention towards the transformational impact, um, solely on, on the transformational impact. And that is both systems, policies, infrastructure that we, we're talking about, building both the bonding capital the and bridging capital that happens in community, fostering those types of things that I think will have this enduring change. Mm-hmm. And so how do we have policies that have both fiscal and, regu- fiscal and regulatory mechanisms attached to them that will promote equity, that will actually lift individuals and families up out of poverty, that will provide economic and social opportunity in this moment? So there have been other, many other Black-led organizations focused on trying to improve the lives of Black people in Minnesota. What do you think makes this one different? How is African-American Leadership Forum different in this day and time? What makes it uh, stand out from others? Yeah, um, what I what I think it is, um, what's brilliant about this idea, it is it's the For Us, By Us movement. And it is those that are in this community that love this community that are coming together across um, both, again, sectors, across socioeconomic means, um, but all saying that we have a shared experience no matter what what space we occupy and whether it's in a corporate seat or a nonprofit or in community, that we're having a shared narrative as Black people. And so I think that that's the brilliance of this institution to actually harness all of that and to be able to create solutions, us coming together as a collective to say that we can set and drive the agenda for better outcomes, um, that no one is coming to save us. No one is coming to save us and that we have to get in the driver's seat around our own destiny and shape, um, shape both policies and systems to equitably serve us better in this moment. You talked about um, 
Elf working to train uh, other black leaders, young folks. Uh, in 2019, you were selected to represent the Twin Cities uh, at Harvard Business School's Young American Leaders Program. Yeah. What did that involve and what did you learn? Yeah, um, I, I, it was a wonderful experience um, and that has been championed by the Itasca Project. And what it, what it actually showed me is to this thing of actually cross-sector coll- collaborations. Um, that, that is a huge takeaway that I found in that we're not going to get this by NGOs, nonprofit organizations only working together. That it is going to require both philanthropic and business leaders to all come together to be able to tackle these pervasive um, and disturbing disparities in our communities. That these issues are not siloed and that they are affecting our economy. And so we need business leaders at the table with solutions. We need our nonprofit partners. We need public. We need government to be an active to pay an active role in dismantling these disparities. And so that was a huge takeaway for me um, and actually equipping us with the tools as leaders to say, how do you form those cross-sector collaborations to be able to um, talk about the issues within your community and learning from roughly um, 13 other cities across our nation. Let's take another phone call as we talk with Adair Mosley, the uh, new CEO of the African-American Leadership Forum, a job he will start in October. And he's coming from Pillsbury United Communities, where he's the CEO right now in Minneapolis. Um, Adair, we have Sonia on the line. Is it Sonia or Sonia? Uh, Sonia. Sonia, good morning to you. What did you want to share with us? Hello. Good morning. Um, Thank you for talking about Pillsbury House because... Um, I just wanted to say that a lot of the the programs that they have really helped me out in my life at different points. Um, and there was, uh, they have a food shelf at Wayhouse that um, has been just amazing um, because when when I've used that food shelf, the food they have is food that it's like food that I would eat culturally. So they have, you know, they have different meats, they have the cheeses, tortillas, different things that, you know, you you would buy at the store anyway. And if you can't do that, it's really hard when you go and they have things and you're like, I, you know, I wouldn't make this. So that, um, that has been really helpful to me at different Mm -hmm. times in my life. Um, And then also they had a program and I didn't even realize it was Pillsbury House until I was talking with a neighbor who works at the theater the other day, um, but they had a clinic, like a natural clinic, where you could go for free and get um, acupuncture. It was like a plan, like they list at your issue, and they made this plan. And I, I had therapy there um, and uh, acupuncture, and it was really helpful. Clearly, because I, you know, was able to go in and get therapy right in my neighborhood. Um, and That's deal wonderful. with some situations. Right. Um, but then another thing they did is there was a time that I lost my job and I was pregnant, and they offered me a job to teach a class, um, uh, like um, how to cook um, food from Latin America healthy to prevent diabetes. And I just wanted to say, like, all these programs, like, they've affected me. I know they've affected a lot of people, and there, there's always just a lot of, just dignity. I just always felt very respected. And, and so I just want to say thank you to you oh. and to everyone. Thank you so that much. That worked at them. Sonia, thank you for sharing that. It sounds like, like, like Pillsbury, um, uh, United Communities, in its many different forms, really <laughs> held Sonia at times when she needed some help. Yeah. 
and it inspired some hope and optimism, right? It, absolutely. That, that story just warms my mm-hmm. heart. And at the center of it is, and you've said the right word, it is restoring dignity in a community mm-hmm. and in people and seeing value. So thank you for sharing that. Right. What was it, um, you know, she mentioned teaching an opportunity to teach a class. I have in my notes here that you wanted to become a teacher at one point in your young Adair life. Um, <laughs> uh, what happened? And you're, you're still kind of teaching now, yeah, but what yeah. was with your, you seeing yourself as a school teacher? Yeah, the the, the most, um, uh, I can go back um, and think about the, some of the most influential people in my lives have been teachers mm-hmm. um, who have just fostered and cared for me. Um, I remember uh, school being both a safe place, a place um, that I wanted to be uh, involved and active in. And so this was uh, me wanting to reciprocate um, really what I had received as a young person. Um, and um, so I, I always saw myself in um, academics, um, teaching um, or being some sort of maybe a principal. Um, uh, life has uh, put me on a different path, but Nonetheless, extremely grateful for for the teachers um, across our community. Me too. Like yeah. uh, those those high school English teachers were it, were it for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, getting back to your the young Adair because yeah. you're 40 now. You're not young anymore. <laughs> um, in case you didn't know, yeah. uh, you moved to Minnesota when you were about 12, yeah. and um, and and sort of like your so your adolescent teenage years there in the, that in St. Charles, that Winona area. Yeah. Um, where did you live before and why did your family move here to Minnesota? Yeah, so I've worked my way up the Mississippi River, born in Kansas City, but also lived in Mississippi oh, in, wow. a, in a little town called West Point. Um, and then um, my my folks came here in the early 90s. Um, my stepfather was um, getting some heart work done at the Mayo Clinic, found mm-hmm. better kind of job opportunities and so settled in um, St. Charles. And we came in. Um, I, I often tell this story in a yellow Cadillac, um, at the start of a, um, the Gladiola Days Parade in St. Charles, um, the, the streets were being lined with people getting ready for the parade and we came in in, in town on that day. Um, <laughs> so quite <laughs> oh, an experience, yeah. yeah, quite an experience for, uh, two, two, two young black boys who were raised in the South to now be put in this rural, um, you know, somewhat homogenous, um, white mm-hmm. community. Um, but uh, a wonderful experience. My older brother still lives there um, and has raised his family there. Um, and I and I get back not as often as I would like, but um, great history. And then ultimately um, moving to Winona in my junior year, another great community on the river um, that um, I just love and have wonderful connections to. And so you, since you've experienced living in um, small towns and yeah. so, you and I kind of talked about this. You feel like you have your, your foot in kind of both worlds because I, you know, I grew up in a rural community too in the state of Virginia. Yeah. And um, there is a lot of connections, right, between what we see in Minneapolis and what we would see in St. Charles. Absolutely. Um, and again, I think that that goes back to, to my that we, we have a shared experience as a people in this state. And um, that how do we not allow headlines and, um, you know, no Nothing to the media, right? But oh, um, the media, we can be <laughs> awful. No, but, you can say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, how do we allow, allow the media um, to sow that kind of discourse right. that we are that we are different? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is, that is, um, I can often relate. I can share um, the ex- experiences when we talk about broadband access in in, in rural Minnesota. Mm-hmm. When we talk about transportation infrastructure, when we all these conversations that we're we're having in the urban core. Mm-hmm. Um, are extremely revel- relevant. Context is a little bit different, 
uh, but extremely um, relevant conversations that we're sharing. All right. Adair, we have another phone call oh, from a listener um, <laughs> in Minneapolis. Kate is on the phone. Good morning, Hi, Kate. Kate. What did you want to share or ask? Yes. Good morning, Adair. We are so excited to see your leadership at the African-American Leadership Forum, which goes by the nickname ALF, for those who might not know. And just so that those who are listening can truly hear, when you talk about the different tables that you would like to see more participation, more community voice, could you be specific just so that those who have the opportunity to extend the invitation understand that you're who you're speaking to and what that opportunity ought to look like for that community voice that you're, you're leading to, to be heard at those tables. Mm. So it sounds like she wants to know more about your leadership style. What can we expect? Yeah. Um, I, thank you, Kate, for, for that question. But I'm really, really interested in the kind of collaborative pa- platforms for engagement and dialogue that can set this Black agenda. And so that means both business, philanthropy, young leaders, governments, those in academia, civil society and media all coming together when we talk about those cross sector. But there's also an opportunity across um, a lot of dimensions, right, uh, both economic and social dimensions, whether it's education, uh, employment, housing, health, climate, transportation, all of these things which are um, certainly affecting the Black community. How do we create tables and platforms to be able to foster ideas, innovation? But I want to pair that innovation with action. And those two things must be able to, to, to live together. But thinking about how do we run fast towards justice? right? Taking leaps as a community. And I think those, I believe, and I know those solutions sit within the black community. And so how do we actually um, elevate this word of form, the the situation and or the meeting in which people can come together to problem solve um, around something of interest? Now, in my personal experience, yeah. um, you know, we know that sometimes when we bring everybody to the table, um, the conversation doesn't go so well, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. sometimes we don't know how to act <laughs> and there's not a lot of listening and there isn't a lot of action at the end of conversations. But yeah. but how do you see that being addressed? Like how do we approach it better? Absolutely. One of the things that I, you know, the the inherent thing at Pillsbury that has taught me is that we have to actually embrace this thing of tension. And I've borrowed this from my, um, my colleagues at the theater who, um, who have fostered this really in the organization. But Tension is this thing that I think actually will get us to creativity, will get us to solutions. At the root of that, though, has to be civility. And we Mm -hmm. see the erosion of civility so much in our society. It is okay for us to disagree around a topic. But how do we have both a process that facilitates us through that? And saying that we and and never losing sight of what is our shared goal and vision as a community, as a people. And I look forward to centering that as part of the conversation. I look forward to using my facilitative kind of leadership style. Um, I look forward to being of service, um, my servant leadership, pulling on all of these things as a leader to say, yes, we're going to have tension, but that tension is going to really uh, under pressure will become the diamond. And so I am looking um, forward to actually fostering that in our community. Uh, I'm older than you. Um, but You don't look it. I, well, I'm you look great. You. Thank you. <laughs> but as I get older, I found that I am really learning the value of patience. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I'm feeling a sense of urgency. Yeah. 
Are you yeah. finding that too as you get older and mature? More? Yeah, absolutely. And um, the, the team, those that have worked with me, will tell you that I um, I, I lead from a place of urgency, um, and sometimes that, that I don't want that to be toxic because we do we know that this um, is a marathon. But ultimately, what I what I want to communicate and convey is that we have many people who are living in the presence of, of deprivation of um, disinvestment. In the presence of a lot Mm -hmm. as a state, right? You look at the last indicators that came out, $9 billion surplus. We see on many fronts that the state is thriving, both social and economically at the macro level. Mm -hmm. And yet we have communities, um, the black community, and I'll center it there um, because that's that's where my eye is certainly turning both personally and professionally, um, that uh, we're, we're living in the presence of that both defri- deprivation and the disinvestment in our community. And so to me, I have to be urgent around that. And I've said in this work, right, when I get to the end, yeah, whatever that is, right? Mm-hmm. When I get to the end of this work, I want my hands to be filthy from doing the work. And I want to make sure that I have put these hands on truly dismantling these oppressive systems and policies and infrastructure. And I don't want to leave anything behind. And because of that, I rise each day with a sense of urgency because those that have asked me, those that see me as a beacon of hope in this moment, those who are searching and finding voice in this moment um, are, are depending on us as leaders of those that occupy the space And if I am going to occupy this space as a leader, then it is incumbent upon me to rise with a sense of urgency to create better solutions. That is Adair Mosley, the CEO of the African American Leadership Forum here in Minnesota. ALF is focused on trying to improve the lives of Black Minnesotans. I spoke with him earlier this year. Our time is up for today. Thanks for listening. Be safe, everyone.